Hi, my name's Nick Smith, founder and creator of Part-Time Pilot. Now, after three years, five flight instructors, and over $22,000 out of my bank account, I was finally able to achieve my dream and become a private pilot. Now, I have a bachelor's and master's in aerospace engineering and over 10 years experience as a flight test engineer. So if it was that difficult for someone like me, no wonder eight out of 10 student pilots never end up becoming a pilot. So this is why I created Part-Time Pilot, and this is why I'm creating this podcast. This podcast will be your audio ground school and just another way part-time pilot is making flight training easier and more consumable for you. So with over 300 students and counting that have used our content to pass the FAA private pilot exams, I hope that you can use this podcast to become the next student to do so. So thank you and I hope you enjoy listening to the part-time pilot audio ground school podcast hello 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 my name is nick smith you are listening to the audio ground school podcast by part-time pilot i'm your host this is the podcast where we go through our entire private pilot online ground school content for you for free so you can listen to it on the go working out walking driving working don't i won't tell your boss don't worry uh, whatever it is that make learning all this ground knowledge a little bit easier. If I sound a little bit different, it's because I'm using a new headset. I now look like a pilot while I'm podcasting as well because I have a headset with a mic on it, you know, just like we wear in the cockpit. feels a little bit more comfortable than having like a mic that I actually have to, you know, like I can't move around and it gets kind of, I don't know, there was some extra sound. So I'm trying this out. I think I've done some tests and I think it sounds really good. So hopefully you guys enjoy it as well. There may be some quirks that we have to get used to, but uh, it helps me out a lot. So, all right. So in today's episode, we are going to move on through the online ground school to section 16, which is on navigation. So we finished up section 15 last week, and then we did, you know, my favorite aero themed, aeronautical themed and aviation themed movies. We were talking about that on social media, and I thought it was a cool, fun topic to talk about. And we needed about, you know, 10 to 15 minutes to fill in that last episode before we move on to navigation, because it's kind of needs an episode of its own, especially this first lesson on aeronautical charts. So aeronautical charts is a difficult episode to do on in audio, right? It's a very visual thing. So I highly recommend that you go into the online ground school. And if you're not a member, you go to parttimepilot.com and you come and join us. And then we organize everything by courses. So this is course titled Step 1, All the Lessons. And you go to Section 16 of that course, which is on navigation. And Lesson 1 will be aeronautical charts. Now, I've done my best to create the most comprehensive sort of guide. You know, the, the FAA has a guide and they have the legends in their airman testing supplement and all that. And there's the legend on your actual aeronautical charts that tell you what the symbols mean and stuff like that. But sometimes, it, one, they don't say all the symbols. Two, they don't really explain the symbols all that well. So my goal with this lesson was to really have the best guide of everything you need to know to read almost everything on the aeronautical charts. So hopefully that is, you guys agree that that is one of the most comprehensive guides on aeronautical charts out there. So that's the lesson we're going to go through today. But before we get to that, there's a couple announcements, or well, there's one announcement I want to make, and that's our scholarship. 
So if you guys know, if you've been following Part-Time Pilot, we do four scholarships a year. Before last year, they were all just $1,000. So it was $1,000 of Part-Time Pilot money, you know, that we made from you guys joining our ground schools. We gave back to you guys, and it had to be members of the online ground school. So now we do three of those $1,000 scholarships to members of our online ground school. And we do it, you know, we do those in the summer, fall, and winter. And then in the spring, we still do a $1,000 donation to a scholarship, but then we also kind of do like a crowdsourcing, fundraising thing. And this year we're bringing in sponsors to try and make an even bigger, bigger scholarship. So we're trying to use our platform, you know, the podcast, our social media to have an even bigger impact on you guys. And that one in the spring, well, last year we raised $5,000. This year our goal is $10,000. So link in the show notes for information on how to donate to that and learn more about that scholarship. But the winter one, $1,000 for members of our online ground school. The deadline is January 28th. So the deadline to apply is January 28th. To apply, you got to fill out a quick application. The link to that application is inside the ground school. So either when you join, you'll get a welcome email and the link is in that welcome email. Or let's say you can't find your welcome email or you deleted it or something like that. You can go to your student dashboard, then click on my memberships. Inside, you're either going to have an online ground school membership or a bundle membership. The bundle membership is where you not only buy the online ground school, but you buy the checkride prep for a discount. So you'll have either the bundle or the online ground school membership. Click on that membership. And then it's going to have some general information about your membership, you know, the courses it includes and how to work through it and all that. In that description, there's going to be a link to the application. So click on that link, read the descriptions on the application. It's mostly just a couple easy questions to get to know you and see how deserving of this application or this scholarship that you are. But there's also some other things in there that we do in the details of that that you want to pay attention to. So go ahead and do that. The deadline to apply is January 28th. So that's one of the uh, announcements that I had. The other one is I decided, you know, every few months or so, I want to do a live lesson to you guys. We've done ones on the updates to the FA written, how that would affect you, how we're changing our course, and how that changes what you study. Before that, we did like equations to know on the FA written exam. And then before that, we've done one on every single type of topic you can think of in the online ground school. And all those recorded live lessons are in the ground school bonus course, by the way. But so we're going to do another one. And I couldn't really think about what to do it on. So I decided to ask people on social media. And you guys said a few things. You said you really want to do cross-country planning. VORs was one. Weather was one. Airspaces were one. E6B. So you guys had a lot of topics that you wanted me to cover. Now, I've already covered these in live lessons, but that's okay. I asked you guys, and that's what you guys said. So there's no way I could do that all in one live lesson. So we decided to do a series of live lessons. And this drops, this episode is going to drop, I believe, on the 22nd of January. So our first live lesson, if you've been following us on social media, is actually as of recording this. I'm recording it on Tuesday the 16th. So it's going to be tomorrow, Wednesday the 17th at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. That's going to be the first live lesson. We're going to do four of them, I think, maybe five. One each week. So the next one will be Wednesday, January 24th. So if you're listening to this on the 22nd or 23rd, you still have time to join us on the 24th or the the 31st or the 7th of February on those live lessons. 
to be able to access those live lessons, you have to either be in our online ground school or sign up to get the Zoom link. So you just got to enter your name and email. We want to kind of root out any spam or people who are not there to just simply learn and study. So we want to try to root those people out. So we just want to make you have to enter your name and email. So I'll put that link in the show notes for the live lessons, sign up. And then when you sign up the day before each live lesson, we'll send you the Zoom link. And all you got to do at the time is click on the Zoom link. They'll always be at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Through experience of these live lessons, that is the best time for people all around the United States in different time zones. I know it might not be ideal for some of the people on the West Coast because they might still be at work. But again, I will put the recordings of these in the online ground school. So if you do end up missing it, you can get them in the online ground school bonus course. All right. So yeah, so check that out. So that's my updates, the scholarship and the live lessons. Okay, because of those updates and because we have a quite a long, I think it's going to be a long lesson, we're just going to get straight into the lesson. We're not going to do, you know, our listener question or our follower question today. Uh, we'll save that for the next one. We have some good ones to get to, though, and we won't read any reviews off today because I know you guys are anxious to, for me to get right to the lesson. So let's go ahead and do that. Now, again, this is in the step one course of your online ground school, step one private pilot lessons. And section 16 on navigation and lesson one on aeronautical charts. There's three lessons in this section, and the first one is on aeronautical charts. So let's get to that. Throughout this ground school, you have seen bits and pieces of, you've heard if you're listening to it, bits and pieces of aeronautical charts, such as airport and radar facility information boxes, you know, like the VOR or Vortec information boxes or the airport information boxes that are found on VFR sectional and terminal area charts. So we've we've shown you some of the things on aeronautical charts, or we've talked about that, again, if you're listening, before. In all, there are nine different types of aeronautical charts in use in the United States. Most of these are instrument charts. So if you go on to IFR, then these are the charts you'll use for IFR. But we're going to just focus on two of them for our private pilot VFR course. There's a lot of information provided on these charts. I know seasoned flight instructors who get stumped on some of the symbols and information on the charts. So it is okay to not know everything. But the FAA might test you on your knowledge of the basics of these charts. So some of the information is good to remember and it's good for you to be able to know how to decipher this information from the charts. Some of that basic information is topographical features, hazards, obstructions, navigation routes, navigational aids, airspaces, and airports. The difference between a VFR sectional and a VFR terminal chart is the scale of the chart. A sectional chart uses a 500,000 to 1 scale. So if you see the diameter of you know, a mountain range or something, in real life, it is 500,000 times bigger than what you see on sectional charts. So that's what that means. Or in other words, it means that 10 miles of space in the real world would equal 10 miles divided by 500,000 or 0. 0.00002 miles or 0. 0.105 feet or 1.26 inches on your chart. And again, that's sectional charts. Sectional charts are designed to help with visual navigation of slow or medium speed aircraft. They focus on obstacle heights, terrain, and other topographical information, radar and radio services, and more. On the flip side, 
A terminal area chart uses a 200,000 to 1 scale, therefore shows more detail in and around airport terminals, such as defined airspace information surrounding busy airports, obstructions and terrain near airports, and more. Typically, a pilot uses both types of charts when planning a cross-country flight. You can download these charts in a PDF form from the FAA, which I'll link to in the show notes and I have linked to in the online ground school. Or you can buy a hard copy to take with you on flights, and I will also put a link to those in the show notes. You can usually find those on Amazon, depending on your area, and we have those all kind of linked out. Again, I'll put that link in the show notes for you. Are you struggling on your radio calls to ATC? Are you looking for a better way to practice that's not up there in the air in that stressful situation? Well, I want to talk to you guys about something called AR Sim or Aviation Radio Simulator by Plain English. It lets you practice talking to ATC through all phases of VFR and IFR flight from taxi out to takeoff all at your own pace. There's no simulator setup needed and it works on any device, mobile or the web. So whether you're a novice or seasoned pro, the guided communication curriculum in trainer mode will elevate your comms proficiency greatly. Download ARSIM by Plain English today and check out our show notes where you can get 10% off using a coupon code. It is a great tool and I highly, highly recommend it. The first thing to understand on a sectional or terminal area chart are the scales. Knowing which scale you are using and which units of measurement you are using will help you accurately measure cross-country flight legs. There are three scales as seen in the snapshot below. So again, if you're following on the online ground school, you can see the snapshot of the scales that we're talking about. If you're listening, if you have a, a terminal area or a sectional chart, look at the edges of your chart, you'll see that scale somewhere on the chart and it'll say like nautical miles, statute miles, or kilometers. So a statute mile is the mile you are most likely familiar with. So this is what uh, a statute mile is 5,280 feet, right? So if you say you've Starbucks is one mile walk away, that's 5,280 feet. A nautical mile is commonly used by pilots and ships, you know, like nautical ships on the, on the ocean. And is one nautical mile. So one nautical mile is 1.151 statute miles. So a nautical mile is a little bit longer. It's 6,076 feet. The difference is that a nautical mile takes into account the curvature of the earth. For any flat earth believers out there, a nautical mile might not compute for you on the reasons we have a difference between statute miles. So statute mile is a straight line distance. A nautical mile takes into account the curvature of the earth. Why do we need that? Well, because when you're traveling very long distances by like a ship, right, on the ocean or by a plane, you have to take that into account, the curvature of the earth. All right. If you don't have a plotter tool with you, you will have to utilize the scales on the chart itself. Measure your distance between two points and compare it to the scale you want your distance to be measured in. So for example, you could use a piece of paper and just put one edge at the airport you're taking off at the next and then make a mark on the page at the airport you're landing on and then take that paper line it up to the scale on your chart 
Let's say you want to know nautical miles, so you'd put the edge of the paper on zero and see where the mark on the scale ends up, and then kind of judge how many nautical miles that would be if you don't have a plotter tool. But a plotter tool makes it much, much easier. Pilots typically use nautical miles, and if you plan to use these distances and calculations for airspeed, you'll want to use nautical miles so that your airspeed is in knots. So the word knots, you know, we spell it like K-N-O-T-S. Well, that just means nautical miles per hour. That's where that comes from. So we're always going to use nautical miles when we measure distances traveled, airspeeds, or yeah, so distances and airspeeds, and then statute miles. When do we use that? Well, we use that for when we talk about like weather visibility, right? Or like distance from clouds. We use statute miles because, again, when we're thinking of visibility, it's a straight line from our eyeballs, or a distance from clouds is a straight line. Doesn't have to take into account the curvature of the Earth. So that's why we use statute miles for that. But for speed and distances, we use nautical miles. Hopefully, that kind of makes sense there. All right, so next, let's talk about latitude and longitude. The next basic concept to know about these charts is how to read and find coordinates or latitudes and longitudes. So when you talk about coordinates, it means a latitude paired with a longitude. Latitudes and longitudes were set up to be a spherical grid system that surrounds the globe so that you can pinpoint a specific location as long as you have both the latitude and the longitude. The latitudes are the horizontal lines seen on charts and globes that measure your vertical distance from the equator. So you have the equator that divides the globe in half, right? It's the horizontal line going around the globe. And then if you were to take horizontal lines up from that all the way to the North Pole, that would be lines of latitude. And then if you were to take horizontal lines below that, those would be all the way to the South Pole. Those will also be the southern lines of latitude. So the equator sits at zero degrees latitude, and the latitudes increase as you move north or south. The longitude, so you kind of have to know whether you're in the northern or southern hemisphere, but the, the terminology we, that we usually use is we just put an S or an N, right? So it's like 37 degrees north or 37 degrees south. That tells you whether you're in the southern or northern hemisphere. We don't use like north isn't like positive degrees and then south is negative. That's usually not how that's denoted. You usually just put the letter at the end for north or south. Same with west and east when we get to longitude. So what are longitudes? Well, those are the vertical lines as seen on the charts and globes that measure your horizontal distance from the prime meridian. So the prime meridian is sort of our zero point. The equators are zero point for latitude and our prime meridian is our zero point for longitude. So then if you're looking at a globe, the vertical lines to the right and left of the prime meridian are the lines of longitude. And they wrap all the way around until you get back to the prime meridian. So when you're the crossing of the prime meridian and the equator, I feel like I used to know where that is in the world. I don't know. Is that in the ocean or is that actually on land? Anyways, maybe someone can write in and let us know. But that location, the crossing, is basically the zero point for our frame of reference, right? That we've set up for coordinate systems on Earth. So that would be like zero, zero north, zero south, zero west, zero east. All right, so on terminal area and sectional charts, the major longitudes and latitudes are labeled as circled in red in the figure that we have here that I'm looking at in our lesson. So I'm gonna try to explain that, but you're basically, you're gonna have vertical lines with little notches on them, right? The notches tell you the 
smaller delineations of the degrees, which we'll get to in a minute. Or you can call them ticks or you can call them minutes. Okay, so I like, I mean, they look like tick marks, right? Coming off the lines, notches, whatever you want to call it. But in reality, they're minutes. So they're going to be labeled. So each uh, line of longitude somewhere on your your aeronautical chart, next to it will be a number with a degree symbol after it. And then each line of latitude, same thing. It's not labeled everywhere. Sometimes you got to search for it a little bit. But in the picture we're looking at, we have a line of latitude of 37 degrees, and we highlight that 37 degrees, and then a line of longitude of 84 degrees. Now, right where there's two lines cross, that is 37 degrees. So we're looking in the northern hemisphere right here because this is an aeronautical chart in the United States, and we're in the northern hemisphere. So where those two lines cross would be 37 degrees north, 84 degrees west. Okay? Between each line of latitude or longitude, so between 37 degrees and 38 degrees, for example, are 60 of those tick marks on the line. The halfway point, which would be 30 tick marks, is also a line drawn on these charts. So there's lines for full latitude and half latitude. So you'll see a line for, and same for longitude. So you'll see a line for 37 degrees north, then you'll see a line for 37 and a half degrees north or 37 degrees and 30 minutes, which we'll get to. And then you'll see a line for 38 minutes as we continue, or 38 degrees as we continue north, right? Same for longitude. You'll see 84 west as we continue to go west, 84 degrees west. You'll see 84 degrees and 30 minutes as your next line. But those half lines for longitude and latitude are not labeled, right? It's not going to say 84 degrees or 84.5 degrees. It's just, it's not going to be labeled. So you'll see 84 labeled, then you'll see an unlabeled line as we move west, and then you'll see an 85 line labeled on your aeronautical charts. These 60 tick marks subdivide each degree of latitude or longitude for more precise location descriptions. Each degree is divided into 60 ticks, which we call minutes. And these are denoted when you write out a longitude or latitude coordinates by an apostrophe. So when you see apostrophe, that means it's minutes. So when we see 84 degree symbol, 30 apostrophe, that's 84 degrees, 30 minutes. Same thing as saying 84 and a half degrees, right? So we're halfway to 85 degrees. Hopefully that makes sense here. And then these minutes are even further divided into seconds, such that each minute has 60 seconds. And these are denoted by quotation marks. So that's the two apostrophes. Seconds are not marked on sectional charts simply because it's too difficult with the scale of the chart. There'd be a crazy amount of tick marks, so we're not zoomed in that much. So they're not shown on these charts. And then again, the figure we have here, it's going to show us the 84 degree longitudinal line. So that's 84 degrees, 00 minutes, 00 seconds. Then as we continue to the west, we see the 84 and a half line, right? So we have 84 degrees, 30 minutes, and 00 seconds. So kind of funny how they do this, right? I don't know why they just don't do, you know, like 84.5 or base 10 type stuff, right? But you have full degrees, right? And then after that, the degrees are broken down into minutes and seconds. So kind of funny because we're not talking about time here. We're talking about space. 
but I don't know whose decision that was. But anyways, that's how we're going to do it. And that's how it's done. <laughs> All right. Latitude and longitudes are also accompanied by a hemisphere denotation such as north for N for north, W for west, S for south, or E for east. So I talked about this. So for example, if you want to find the coordinates 84 degrees, 12 minutes, and 30 seconds west, and 37 degrees, 3 minutes, and 00 seconds north, you would first start looking for sectional charts that lie in the northern hemisphere that is west of the prime meridian. You can look at a map like the one we show here, which shows you kind of the lines of latitude and longitude, and then which sectional chart is in that area. So it's kind of like a grid of the United States, and then it has lines of latitude and longitude. So if, if you know a coordinate of where you want to fly, you can find it on this map, right? So you just look at the lines of latitude, you find yours, you, you go down to the line of longitude, or sorry, you find the line of longitude from left to right, then you go down, find the line of latitude, right? Just like an XY coordinate system. And then you look like, okay, it's going to be right there. That's going to be the Omaha sectional chart. So then you go download the Omaha sectional chart and boom. It also shows you in purple on this kind of diagram where terminal area charts might be. Those are around large terminal airports. Okay, so if we want to find 84 degrees, 12 minutes, 30 seconds west, and 37 degrees, 3 minutes, 0 seconds north, if we want to find that exact location, how would we do that? Well, we'd go and we'd find first the 84 degree line of longitude and the 37 degree line of latitude on our aeronautical chart that we found, right? So first we'd, we'd use that overall chart to find which sectional chart we want to use, then we'd pull that chart up, we'd buy it, we download it, whatever. We pull that up and then we'd go and we'd find the 84 degree line of longitude and the 37 degree line of latitude. From there, so let's first start with the line of longitude, our longitudinal position. We count left from 84 degree line of longitude towards the 85 degree line of longitude because we're more than 84 degrees. We're moving west, right? We're 84 degrees and 12 minutes west, so we're going towards the 85 degree line. We would count left from the 84 degree line for 12 and a half minutes, right? So the half minute comes from the 30 seconds. So it's 12 minutes, 30 seconds. So that's like 12 and a half minutes on our chart, which is 12 and a half tick marks. And then we'd mark this line on our pencil. So we'd find the 84 degree line of longitude, count 12 and a half ticks to the left, to the west. And then we, we'd kind of make a mark there with, with a pencil on our chart. Next, we're going to go from the 37 degree line of longitude, of latitude, again, towards the 38 degree line of latitude, more north, because we have 37 degrees north and three minutes, and we're going to count three ticks above the 37 degree line, and then we're going to make a mark there. So now our location is the crossing of that 37, so the, the three tick mark above 37 degree line of latitude, and the 12 and a half tick mark to the left of our 84 degree longitude line. And that is where our location is. I hope I explained that well. If you want to, again, I mentioned this lesson is very visual. So go and check out the picture we have here. We literally counted out the tick marks and we show you the, the intersection and where that location would be. And just so you know, it's just outside a class untowered airport, London Corbin in, I can't remember where this I think what state this is in. But anyways, London Corbett Airport, wherever that is. 
maybe someone knows. Okay, let's kind of review some of the stuff we've already talked about and then get into more of the detailed information on these aeronautical charts. So first off is the airport information on charts. Most major airports are depicted with an airport information box alongside of it. For example, we have the Santa Barbara SBA airport here in the lesson. We have that information box and we have all the information labeled around it. So we have the star on top of the airport symbol that represents a rotating airport beacon in operation from sunset to sunrise. We have the airport symbol itself, right? A blue airport symbol means it's a controlled airport. If it was magenta, it would mean uncontrolled. A circular symbol indicates a hard surface runway between 1,500 feet and 8,069 feet. And then ticks surrounding the symbol represents services fuel available during normal hours. So lots of information just in that one symbol. We have the airport name below that and then along with the airport identifier. for So in this example, SBA, we have solid lined box surrounding the airport name. If we don't have this in this example, well, that would indicate that 14 CFR Part 93 special requirements and traffic pattern info information are applicable. So we'd want to look that up if we had that. And then the next line, we have a CT, which indicates CT indicates control tower and is followed by the tower's associated frequency. Then we have a, if we have a asterisk symbol or a star symbol following the control tower frequency, that would indicate that the tower operates part-time. You know, we'd want to look up in the chart supplement to see when those hours are. Then the next thing we might see is a C inside a blue or magenta circle. That indicates that the previously listed frequency is the CTAF frequency, the common traffic advised frequency. Then we might see ATIS, the word ATIS, followed by another frequency. So that's going to be your automatic terminal information service or ATIS you know, frequency where you can get that information. The next line, you're going to see some numbers and symbols. Uh, the first number indicates elevation in feet. In this example, we have Santa Barbara's right by the coastline, and it's a 13 feet of elevation. Then you have an L, which indicates lighting and operation, sunrise to sunset. If there's a star by the L, that means that lighting uh, limitations do exist, and you'd want to see the chart supplement for more information there. The last number after the L indicates the longest runway in hundreds of feet. So in this example, we have 60, so that would be 6,000 feet is the longest runway for Santa Barbara. So there's, again, lots of information in just this little box. Then you might see another frequency. That would be the Unicom frequency here on kind of the third line. Then the, on the fourth line, we have uh, a little bit more information, usually stuff on traffic patterns. If you see RP, that means right pattern, and it indicates the runways listed after that, runway numbers listed after that have right traffic patterns. If there's a star, it indicates that, you know, again, special conditions exist. See the chart supplement. Essentially, every time you see a star, it means go read the chart, chart supplement because there's more information that you need to know. All right, so in this example, we have RP7-33L and 33R. So runway 7, 33 left and right all have right traffic patterns. If you didn't see that, right, you can assume, one, I would read the chart supplement to see if there's any information on the traffic patterns in the chart supplement. But if you don't see any information on that, we can assume that it's the default traffic pattern direction, which is left pattern. Some airports are not depicted with an information box, but still contain a lot of information in the symbol itself. So let's review some of the most common airport symbols and what they can tell us. So you have a blue airport symbol, 
That tells us that the airport is controlled. It has a control tower. The blue airport can be depicted as only runways, which means that, so it's just going to have the outline of the runways, which means that the controlled airport has hard surface runways greater than 8,069 feet. The blue airport can also be depicted with the runways in an enclosed blue circle like the Santa Barbara one was, which means that the controlled airport has hard surface runways between 1,500 feet and 8,069 feet. So if it's enclosed in a circle, it tells you, you know, it's between 1,500 feet and 8,069 feet. If it's not enclosed in a circle, it's just a big outlined runway, then it's greater than 8,069 feet. The blue airport can also be depicted simply as an unfilled blue circle, which means that the controlled airport has other than hard surface runways. You won't see a lot of these, but that's what that means. Magenta airport symbols tell us that the airport is uncontrolled, i.e. no control tower. Magenta airport can be depicted as only runways again, right? The runway outlines, which means, again, it's hard surface runways greater than 8,069 feet. The star on top of any airport symbols tells us that the airport has a rotating beacon. We kind of already mentioned that. And then again, the, the magenta airport can also be depicted where you see the runways enclosed in a magenta circle. And again, that tells you that the hard surface runway is between 1,500 feet and 8,069 feet. So the same as controlled airport, just different color, right? And again, it can also have just an unfilled magenta circle, which would be other than hard surface runway. So the same as controlled airports, just a different color. Military airports are depicted the same as civil airports, except for other than hard surface runways. Military other than hard surface runways are depicted by two concentric circles. By the way, in the ground school, we have a picture example of all of these. So after I say every one of these, there's a picture example. I, I said it's a very visual thing. I'm going to try to explain, you know, the best I can what these things look like. But the best thing to do is to take a look inside the ground school. And if it's controlled, obviously a controlled military other than hard surface runway would be two blue concentric circles. Seaplane airports are depicted by the symbol of an anchor. So again, you could have a controlled or uncontrolled. So you could have magenta or blue anchor, and that would be a seaplane airport. Abandoned airports are depicted by a circle with an X through it. So you might see an airport, right? You're flying, you need to land somewhere. And then you, you see an airport and you're like, oh, that doesn't look like anyone's using that. You check your chart and it's got an X through it. That means it's abandoned. You know, an emergency situation still might be your best option, but it's good to know that it's abandoned, may not be kept up. There may be debris, cracks on the runway, things like that. So that's something to consider. Helipads for helicopters are depicted with a circle with an H in it. And again, those can be magenta or blue. And then private airports or runways are depicted with a circle with an R in it. So an R, I don't know why it wouldn't have a circle with a P in it. But yeah, the circle with an R in it is for a private airport. Private airports can also be denoted differently if they meet the criteria. For example, a private Airport can be depicted with just runway outlines in magenta if the runway is over 8,069 feet. In this case, you'll see PVT above the airport name. So they're not always just the circle with an R in it. Just a fun fact there. Airports with fuel services have four notches around their symbol. So if there's no fuel services, there's no notches around the symbol. If they do have services, then they have notches, right? So again, we have examples of what those would look like here in the ground. 
Okay, so let's talk about now radio aids to navigation. Again, we kind of briefly talked about these before, but let's review that and go into a little bit more detail. So radio aids to navigation, such as VORs, will have information on boxes for flight service station next to them on the aeronautical charts. These boxes have great information for pilots wanting to contact and receive communications from these services. So in the example, we have the Julian VOR here. And we have at the top of the box, uh, above the box, is the FSS radio frequency. Inside the box, we have at the top, we have the name of the VOR Vortec or VOR DME. So in this case, it's Julian. Top right corner inside the box, we have the services available. So we have a blue circle with an H in it, or that could be an A or a T. H indicates HIWAS, A indicates ASOS or AWAS, and T indicates T-Web. A little bit more information on those here in a second. And then below that, on the next line, starting from left to right, we have another frequency. That's a VOR frequency. And if it's accompanied by a star, it indicates frequency does not have continuous operations. And then you have, next you have a channel for the Vortec or TACAN facility. That's usually used for military purposes. And then after that, you have the VOR facility identifier. So in this case, JLI. And then after that, you have the Morse code. So in this example, we have a dot, dash, 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 dot, dash, dot, 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 dot. So that's what you would listen to when you tune in this VOR you know, while you're flying around to make sure that it's operational. You don't want to be trusting or navigating off a, a VOR that's not operational. So that's how you check. If you hear that Morse code, you're good to go. And then below that, in this example, we have below the box that says San Diego. That's the name of the accompanying FSS station providing voice communication. So most stations will have in-flight information services that are depicted by the letter H, T, or A in the top right corner of the box that we mentioned. These letters, again, stand for H stands for HIWAS, T stands for T-Web, and A stands for ASOS. So HIWAS, or Hazardous In-Flight Weather Advisory Service, is a continuous broadcast of hazardous weather information. This information includes airmets, sigmets, convective sigmets, and urgent PIREPs, and is transmitted using the voice capability of selected VORs. T stands for T-Web, or Transcribed Weather Broadcast, and it consists of meteorological, meteorological, I struggle with that word all the time, and aeronautical data recorded on tapes and broadcast over selected nav aids. Generally, the broadcast contains route-oriented data with specially prepared NWS forecasts, in-flight advisories, and winds aloft. It also includes selected current, and NWS means National Weather Service. It also includes selected current information such as weather reports, METARs, for example, NOTAMs, and special notices. Finally, the A, I said, was ASOS or AWAS. That's Automated Surface Observation System or Automated Weather Observation System. There are currently more than 900 ASOS sites in the United States. These Automated systems collect surface observations on a continual basis, 24 hours a day. AWAS units are operated and controlled by the FAA. These systems are among the oldest automated weather stations and predate ASOS. They generally report a 20 in 20-minute intervals and, unlike ASOS, do not report special observations for rapidly changing weather conditions. So ASOS is a little bit better than AWAS, but they kind of group them together when they tell you the information here. Uh, if you want to know which one it is, right, uh, you would want to look in the chart supplement for an, an airport near that rate, that navigational aid. 
All right, uh, we have another figure here that shows the different symbols you'll see for Radio 8's navigation on aeronautical charts. So we have a VOR, we have VOR DME, we have just DME, we have Vortec, and then we have other facilities like Remote Communications Office, I think, and then FSS Outlet, Flight Service Station Outlet, and then we have NDBs or, or with DMEs, and then NDBs by themselves. NDB is non-directional beacon. So those like RCOs and NDBs, those are more for instrument flight. But it's good to know someone, you know, maybe your examiner might ask you, wait, what's the symbol? So let me try and describe these symbols here. Let's see here. That sixth side is a hectagon, right? A hectagon. So VOR is a hectagon with a dot inside of it. A VOR DME is the same hectagon with a dot inside of it, but then that is surrounded by a square. So it's a dot inside of a hectagon inside of a square <laughs> is a VOR DME. A VOR would just be a dot inside a hectagon. Then you have a vortex. A vortex is like a dot inside of a triangle, a dot inside an upside down triangle, but the corners of the triangle are kind of cut off and bolded. So imagine an upside down triangle, cut just the tips of the corners off, and then you, so it makes a, a little line, right? an extra side on each corner, and then you bold those lines on the corner and then put a dot in the middle. That's a vortex. A DME, simply just a DME, you won't see a lot of these, but just a DME would just be a square. And then RCOs and FSS outlets, uh, those are just going to be a dot with a circle around it. So it's a little circle with a dot inside of it. NDB, you're going to have a dot with a circle around it. Then it's going to be followed by concentric circles of like little dots. So, like, imagine a circle, right, made out of dots. So the lines are, are made out of dots. You know how in, like, Word, you can, like, Microsoft Word, you can draw a line, and then you can change the format of the line to just be dashes or dots or whatever. So imagine the dot one of a circle, and that's just a bunch of concentric circles. So it's, like, almost, like, emanating out of that circle. That's what an NDB looks like. And then an NDB with a DME, same thing. Just throw in a square into that symbol. And there you have it. Another box of information you will see on sectional charts are air traffic control approach and departure boxes. These boxes tell the pilot what frequencies they can conduct ATC flight following when in a specific area on the chart. The figure below tells pilots flying in this area of the sectional chart that they can contact Norfolk, Norfolk approach within 20 nautical miles of this box on 118.9, 118.9, or 353.7 where 353.7 is the ultra-high frequency, or UHF, used by the military. So that's another kind of information box you might see. Again, we have an example there. It says CTC Norfolk APP within 20 nautical miles on 118.9, 353.7. Okay, let's move on to elevations and terrain. Aeronautical charts use a variety of ways to depict elevations and terrain. The first way is a contour color scale that tells you any section of the map with a specific color has a specific elevation. Each sectional chart will have a legend in the bottom left corner that determines the color mapping for terrain elevation on the chart. And again, we show an example of that. So in this example, we have sea level at the bottom. And then between sea level and 1,000 feet, it is like a light green. Then 1,000 feet to 2,000 feet, we have a little bit darker green. 2,000 feet to 3,000 feet, we have like a light yellow. 3,000 feet to 5,000 feet, we have a darker yellow. 
5,000 to 7,000 feet, we have a light brown or tan. 7,000 feet to 9,000 feet, we have like a light orange. 9,000 to 12,000 feet, we have like a burnt orange or a darker orange. And then 12,000 feet to 12,306 feet, which would be the highest elevation on that chart, is brown, like a dark brown. So that kind of tells you the ranges of elevations that you'll see, the color contour that you can quickly kind of judge. You can say, okay, this area I'm flying over is a light yellow. So that means that it's anywhere from 3,000 feet to 5,000 feet of elevation. So I'm going to have to, I'm going to make sure that I fly well above 5,000 feet to avoid any elevation. Another example of a picture of a sectional chart, it's the Brownsville sectional chart, shows sea level of elevations depicted in green. So there's like a little valley here in the top left corner of that depicted in green. You see it says Camp Creek. So that's down in the valley. It's around sea level. And then it also has elevations of 3,000 feet to 5,000 feet in yellow, and then elevations above 12,000 feet depicted in brown. But you don't see any of those. In, in the example here, we actually just have uh, up to 4,800 feet. So we just have the yellow color. We don't quite get to any of the tans, oranges, or browns. So we have like a light yellow, the light green, the green at sea level, and then the regular kind of yellow up to, you know, between 3,000 and 5,000. So that kind of tells you right there, boom, these are the colors. This is the highest altitude. It's a quick visual reference and pretty neat uh, using just colors. Okay, sectional charts also tell us the highest elevation in every single latitude and longitude grid coordinate. So remember we told you there's lines of latitude and lines of longitude drawn on your chart. And then you have every line of latitude and then every half line of latitude is drawn. And then every line of longitude and every half line of longitude is drawn. Those all make like squares, right? Or rectangles, grids, right? And each grid will have a number in it. So the elevation figure is listed as the highest terrain elevation. So it's a blue bolded number. And that's the highest terrain elevation plus 200 feet for unreported obstacles above the terrain and another 100 feet for altitude and altimeter air for a total of plus 300 feet, the highest terrain. It then rounds up to the nearest 100 feet, or the elevation figure can be the height of the tallest man-made obstacle plus 100 feet for altitude air. It then rounds up to the nearest 100 feet. For example, if the highest terrain elevation is 4,355 feet, then the number listed would be plus 300 feet or 4,655 feet, which is then rounded to 4,700 feet, or 4,7 as written on the chart. So we have an example here in the figure. It shows a 5,4, a big bolded 5,4 inside one of those grid line squares. So that tells us that the highest elevation is 5,100 feet, give or take some because of that rounding in this coordinate grid. But, you know, if I was flying, I would just use 5,400 feet sort of as my number of the highest elevation because the rest of it was just talking about airs. So I would say, okay, the highest elevation in that grid is 5,400 feet and I plan my altitudes flying over that accordingly. Uh, it's a quick way to just know if your altitude, if you're going to need to change your altitude when flying over that grid, right? Or if you're going to need to look closer at your path to see, you know, if you don't want to change altitude, maybe look closer at the path to say, oh, the high elevation is actually over here. I'm going to stay over here in this grid line, so I'm okay. 
right? But it's a quick way to kind of know the highest elevation in each grid coordinate. All right. National parks, wildlife refugees, uh, and wilderness areas are depicted with blue lines to surround the area and a line of blue dots just inside the outer border. Pilots are required to fly higher than 200 feet AGL above the wilderness area. So you'll see like blue bold outlined lines, you know, kind of zigzagging around the wildlife area. And then inside that border, you'll have blue dots. So that's a symbol for wildlife areas and national parks. Populated areas are also depicted on sectional charts. These areas are depicted by the color yellow, and they're meant to outline the populated area's lights while at night. So if you're flying at night, you should kind of see that same shape of lights from, you know, street lights, businesses, homes, that sort of thing, right? That's kind of how it will illuminate. They're kind of guessing the shape of that illumination on your sectional chart. So those yellow bordered spots, you know, near cities and airports, right? That's populated areas. And we have a figure here near Minnow International. And just south of it, there's a yellow line, and that's the populated area near that. So it's a quick, helpful way to kind of see where populated areas might be. Because remember, our minimum safe altitudes change whether we're flying over populated areas or other than populated areas, things like that. Okay, so this is a long lesson. We have a lot more to get to, but we're already pushing like 45, 50 minutes here on this episode. So we're going to have to cover the rest of the lesson in the next episode where we'll cover airspaces on your charts, nav aids on your charts. There's a bunch of different nav aids, symbols, obstacles, how to read obstacles, how to know that the altitudes and stuff like that of obstacles, airways, isogonics, roads, military routes, IFR routes, VFR transition routes, other information boxes, and then We'll even finish up with time zones. So a lot still to get to. It, I warned you guys it was a long lesson, so it makes it even longer when I have to try and explain what each thing looks like. Doing my best. Hopefully I'm helping you guys out here with this, and this is a worthwhile audio lesson. All right, without further ado, remember, sign up for those live lessons if you want to come join us for those live lessons. And that scholarship's coming up. Scholarship deadline, January 28th. $1,000 scholarship. And then we usually give the runner-up, if we like another application, usually give them free ground school or refund their ground school. So you got to be a member of the ground school. Go check it out, parttimepilot.com. See you guys next week. Hey guys, it's Nick. I want to take a second to speak directly to the student pilots out there. You might be a student pilot that is you know, wondering what to do next, how to get started, or maybe you're looking for the right ground training or flight training, or maybe you've already started ground training or flight training and you're stuck, you're in a rut, and you're looking for a change, something to help get you out of that hurdle. From my own experience in flight training, after three years, five instructors and $22,000 and wanting to quit multiple, multiple times, and then now, after seeing hundreds and hundreds of student pilots through part-time pilot, I've realized that the number one thing that makes student pilots fail is that they do not have a good fundamental understanding of the ground training when they get to the more advanced flight lessons. Now, who here has seen Top Gun Maverick? Do you remember in the movie when he says, don't think, just do? Now, when I heard this, I was like, oh my goodness, this is brilliant because this is exactly what you have to be as a pilot. Now, of course, 
It's not that we're not thinking, but it's that we understand things like weather, aerodynamics, what our instruments are telling us, what ATC is telling us. We have such a good core fundamental understanding of these things that we don't have to think about them. And when we don't have to think about them, we can instinctively feel and fly the aircraft, look out for dangers and avoid emergency situations. If we do have to think about these things, it's going to put us behind mentally and we're going to be behind the aircraft. And when you're behind the aircraft mentally, bad things happen. And this happens when you don't have a good understanding of the ground school content. So now the first 10 to 15 hours of your flight training can go smooth, even if you don't have a good understanding of ground training, right? You can go up for a discovery flight, have a blast. You can go up, learn how to take off, learn how to land. You may be even able to solo for the first time fly a plane for the first time everything's great and dandy but once you get into you know bad weather flying or flying at heavy heavily trafficked airports or speaking with ATC for Bravo clearance or cross-country flight planning and flying solo on a cross-country flight things get a little more advanced and when this happens and you don't have a good understanding of the ground school concepts you're gonna hit a wall you're gonna start to get behind the aircraft and when this happens if you have a good flight instructor, they're going to stop you and they're going to say, okay, we need to do one-on-one -on -one ground lessons. And now you're going to be paying your flight instructor to not even fly with you, but instead $50, $60, $70 an hour to just teach you the ground school content that you should already know. And, at, and the worst part is, is you're not flying with them. So the flight training that you gain, the currency, the proficiency that you gained is going to be lost and you're going to have to redo those lessons. What happens to most student pilots is they continuously hit these mental blocks where they get behind the aircraft, they start making mistakes, and then they catch up with the ground knowledge only to have that happen again. And they start to get in this vicious cycle of having to redo trainings and repay for trainings until it gets to the point where them or their family, they finally say, you know what, this has to stop. We can no longer afford the training costs uh, without any progress, you know, and they end up quitting. Now, so how do we avoid that? Well, here comes part-time pilot. Again, I said I went through my own experience of this and I realized that most flight training and ground training is not tailored to the modern day student pilot. And when I say modern day student pilot, I should say modern day part-time student pilot because let's face it, there's a very small percentage of us that can go and dedicate 24-7, 365 to our flight training or not even miss a beat and be able to pay for flight training without working. So most of us have a full-time job or maybe a part-time job. We have kids, we have family, we have school. We have all these other responsibilities on top of flight training. And most of these flight trainings and ground trainings are not tailored towards you. And so how is it the part-time pilot tailors to the modern day student pilot? Well, the first way we do that is by keeping ground school interesting. You wanna avoid being boring, you wanna avoid that burnout. So how we do that is we present our material in multiple, multiple ways. And you're actually listening to one of them right now. You can consume our content via this podcast and an audio recording. You can do this while you're running, while you're driving in traffic. Again, tailoring to that busy part-time student pilot. Or you can read through our written lessons. You know, I like to read, so read. for those of you that like to read, you can read through the lessons. You can see the step-by-step -step examples and the procedures that we have. 
or you can look through our study guide and see our diagrams and mnemonic devices have that visual cue those visual cues and aids that help further your understanding or you can watch our videos or you can take our quizzes and practice tests to reinforce what you just learned. And then finally, you can join us live weekly for our live Q&A and our live lessons so you can see in real time these things taught out and these examples done in real time. And then finally, you can utilize our group community to form study groups, get questions answered 24-7. All of this is tailored for the modern day student pilot to keep ground school interesting, keep it from being boring, keep from having that burnout, and to find ways that you can consume the content throughout your busy schedule. And guess what? It works. We've had over 350 student pilots come through, take and pass their FAA exams without a single student failing. That's right. A single student has yet to tell me that they failed either their FAA written or their FAA checkride. So that is just proof in the pudding right there that our concepts, the way we explain things in plain written English and the way we give you multiple ways to consume this content is working. So if this sounds like something you might be interested in and you want to come join us, we'd love to have you. Just go to www.parttimepilot.com, click on Online Ground School, and we'll see you inside the Online Ground School. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you guys next week.